listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren, and we are going to be discussing Black Sabbath's ninth studio album, Heaven and Hell. Released in 1980, this album would signify the beginning of a new chapter for the band with Ronnie James Dio joining as vocalist in place of the recently fired Ozzy Osbourne. But first, a little back history. After the completion of the Never Say Die tour, the band would convene in Los Angeles at the end of 1979 to begin work on a new album. Following the disappointing sales figures for the Never Say Die album, as well as fatigue and escalating drug use, the band would struggle to find inspiration. Ozzy would eventually be fired and Ronnie James Dio, fresh from a stint with Richie Blackmore in his band Rainbow, would join Black Sabbath. Ronnie would quickly click with Tony Iommi and the songs would begin to flow. Unfortunately, Bill Ward would find himself being consumed by his alcohol addiction and would remember little from these recording sessions. Bassist Geezer Butler would find himself leaving the writing sessions early to deal with personal issues back home in England. And the bass duties at various points would be handled by Ronnie, new keyboardist Jeff Nichols, and former Rainbow bassist Craig Gruber. Geezer would eventually return to the fold as the band would head off to record the album, along with producer Martin Birch at Criteria Studios in Miami. The end result would be an album that remains a classic to this day. Heaven and Hell would be released on April 21st, 1980, would eventually go platinum in the U.S. and silver in the U.K., The title track would be a heavy metal anthem for the ages. And with songs like Neon Nights, Children of the Sea, and Die Young, Black Sabbath would firmly reestablish themselves as kings of all things heavy. The tour for Heaven and Hell would begin on April 17, 1980, and end on February 2, 1981. Sadly, August 19, 1980, would be Bill Ward's last live show with the band until their reunion at Live Aid years later. New drummer Vinny Apice would make his debut with the band on August 31st at Honolulu Stadium in Hawaii. Songs from the album played during this tour would be Neon Nights, Children of the Sea, Lonely is the Word, Die Young, and Lady Evil. So, all right, Darren, here we are at a new chapter in uh, Black Sabbath's histories. What are your memories and early impressions of Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell album? Well, I, at this point, I had all the Black Sabbath albums that up to this point. Um, now, I, this is probably about 1981. So Heaven and Hell had already come out. And I don't think Mob Rules was out yet. But I wasn't in, in any hurry to get Heaven and Hell because Ozzy wasn't in Black Sabbath. And then I, I read, a, I think it was Hit Prater magazine where it had on the front cover, Ozzy, I remember David Lee Roth was on the cover in 1980, 81. And the headline was Ozzy versus Sabbath. So the article was basically that, you know, you had Ozzy, Ozzy, Ozzy. 
Osborne talking about Black Sabbath and his departure. Then you have Black Sabbath talking about Ronnie James Dio and Ozzy's departure. And there was obviously some acrimony there. So I was on Team Ozzy. Uh, and I, I really only heard a few Dio songs, Dio-related band songs. Of course, I heard Man on a Silver Mountain. Um, I didn't own any Rainbow albums at that time. Um, but I, I heard a couple songs with Dio singing and, and, and I liked them. I mean, there was nothing, nothing I had, uh, I didn't dislike his voice, but to me, I, I kind of established a loyalty to, to Ozzy, as silly as it was, I guess. And I, I was reluctant to accept Black Sabbath with anybody other than Ozzy. But here I was a Black Sabbath fan and there were no more records to buy. So I hesitated but eventually I went to the record store and, and I bought Heaven and Hell. And I put it on and I listened to it. And it, I mean, it was great. It was great music, it was heavy. Uh, of course, you know, familiar tone of, of Tony Iommi's guitar drew me in, but it was really Children of the Sea that made me really love the album in spite of the fact that I didn't want to. But Children of the Sea, that riff was just so unique and so heavy and so cool. And and I really liked Dio's vocals. I mean, he, he certainly was very different from Ozzy and it changed the whole sound of the band. But there there was an element that was still consistent, and that was the sound of Tony's guitar, that heavy guitar. So I could I could at least latch on to that and then kind of gradually get myself acclimated to the difference to the different singer which wasn't easy um but i the thing about ronnie that i thought was really cool was that his mute his voice went with the sound of the music whereas ozzy had ozzy didn't really have a range but he had a cool sounding voice and he defined black sabbath in that regard he was the voice of black sabbath now we have one album here with this new singer who is so different, but obviously technically a better singer in that when the music got lighter, when the music got softer, he would adapt his voice. When the music got heavier, he would adapt his voice. So you had this, this singer that was rolling along with the feel and the emotion that the music was presenting. And I thought that was really cool. And like I said, I mean, in spite of the fact that I didn't want to like it, I just did. I, I liked it. I mean, uh, but I think in my mind, I separated it from from Black Sabbath. It was called Black Sabbath. But to me, Black Sabbath was still the Ozzy era. I mean, we had more albums to back that up. I mean, I only had this one album. And it was called Black Sabbath. So I really couldn't associate it completely with Black Sabbath. But man, I, I just loved the music. I thought it was great. Now, it wasn't as, <clears throat> as into side two. There were some songs that kind of I felt a little uh, apprehensive with the, and I think it's generally the songs that most people have issues with, uh, Walk Away and Wishing Well. But I mean, over time, I, I, I love them now. I mean, I love the whole album. I, I, think, it's, I think it's an outstanding album. So um, that's basically how I, how I was introduced to Heaven and Hell. I mean, I just went out and I had everything. <laughs> I kind of hesitated, but hey man, I love Black Sabbath and 
I gotta hear I gotta hear what this sounds like. So that's how it happened. How about you? Yeah, it's interesting. I can remember real kind of the order that I got all the Aussie era records, but as we were getting ready, as I was getting ready for this, I was trying to remember when I got Heaven and Hell and I couldn't really I remember the order that I bought all the Ozzy era albums, but I can't remember where Heaven and Hell came in there. I, I know it was early on. I mean, I know that I had Paranoid first and I may have had one other Ozzy era album and then I got Heaven and Hell. I know that they were close enough to each other that I did not have any kind of attachment. I hadn't spent so much time with just the Ozzy era stuff that it felt strange to me to hear Dio in the band. It kind of happened almost at the same time. So although I was aware that Ozzy was the guy that had more albums with Black Sabbath, uh, I still embraced Dio as quickly as I did Ozzy. And I, I was really, if maybe if I had discovered Black Sabbath, like I you discovered them a little bit earlier than me. And if I had more time with just the Ozzy era stuff, uh, I might've felt different, but uh, I had Heaven and Hell. It might've been the third Black Sabbath album that I had. It might've even have been the second Blacks. I know Paranoid was my first and Heaven and Hell would have either been the second or the third. So it was all kind of happening at the same time for me. And I knew nothing about Ronnie. I hadn't heard any of the Rainbow stuff at that time. Uh, to me, although it sounded different than the Ozzy era Black Sabbath stuff, it made sense to me and it fit in with some of the other stuff I was listening to at the time, like British Steel, uh, some of the other 80s stuff that I was uh, hearing around that time. It sort of fit and made sense for me with that. And, uh, and I loved it. <laughs> I loved it as much as in, in some ways, maybe at the time, I do remember kind of thinking like, okay, well, this is cool. Like I've missed out on the Ozzy era, but I'm here for the Ronnie James Dio era. And this is like, you know, like being a sports fan, you hear about the team that, that won the Stanley cup years ago, but now you're a fan of the, the team here right now. Yeah. So this is yeah. like, this is my team right now, you know, Ronnie James Dio. And as a young naive kid here, I was thinking that Ronnie would be in black Sabbath forever. And that this is, I didn't realize that I thought, well, you know, Ozzy had eight albums with, with the band, I'm sure, you know, Ronnie will do something similar. And I was thinking like, okay, I just thought it was really cool that I was kind of right there for, for the whole thing. And I remember I've mentioned this, you know, before that I was hearing a lot of stuff off of uh, college radio and our local classic rock station, and they would play neon nights in heaven and hell. You know, I remember hearing those right up against paranoid and war pigs and stuff like that so I was pretty I was probably aware of Ronnie even you know right right at the same time that I was hearing Ozzy it was just that I think it took me you know I got paranoid first and it took me an album or two before I was able to get heaven and hell but uh it's it's I I mean I've I say this Ronnie is my favorite hard rock heavy metal singer uh I think it's Black Sabbath moving into the to the 80s. I think that there was something in the air in the 80s. I mentioned Judas Priest's British Steel. It seemed like a lot of metal bands in 1980 
whether well, there was some sort of subconscious thing that all these bands decided to do this to streamline their sounds to get a little bit more focused to leave behind some of the jammy elements of of this the 70s and it was like kind of a start of a new feel a new sort of thing you had saxon with you know wheels of steel and strong arm of the law motorhead releases uh, Ace of Spades, Ozzy has released Blizzard of Oz, Sabbath releases Heaven and Hell, uh, Scorpions release, uh, what were they on, Animal Magnetism, I guess? Love Drive 79, Animal Magnetism. Uh, 80, right? 80, yeah, yeah. Right, so all these bands are sort of moving into the 80s and sort of starting, it's, it's not a new sound, but it's sort of streamlining their sound in a lot of ways, and I think Black Sabbath was right there. And so when I heard Heaven, it, the Ozzy era Sabbath sounded like something from the 70s for me. Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell sounded like these other bands that I was hearing on the radio, like Accept in mm. Saxon, in Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden releases their first album, and Judas Priest. It, it fit that, Heaven and Hell fit in that group. And so I think it was exciting because I was discovering those groups and groups like Iron Maiden were new at that time. So I'm discovering all these groups and it seemed like, okay, this is Black Sabbath here for the 80s and I'm, I'm here at the beginning of it. So uh, it's an album that I still love to this day. Uh, I listen to it all, you know, I can listen to it and always find, hear something in it I never heard before. Uh, I think it's a classic album that's, that's sort of, uh, you know, it stood the test of time. And depending on who you ask, if you do some people who, uh, Dio was their introduction to Black Sabbath. They heard Ronnie James Dio's version of in Black Sabbath before they heard any of the Ozzy stuff. So for them, it's it's uh, you know their heart uh, lies with uh, the Dio era of Black Sabbath. So yeah, well it's it, it's it's definitely valid. Um, when you started talking about the things that were going on at the time that this album was released. I was very fortunate for Black Sabbath because I think that things, and, and we talked about this when we talked about technical ecstasy and, and we were talking about Never Say Die, the musical climate at the time was sort of deteriorating for what Black Sabbath were doing. And, you know, we were starting to see bands, punk bands and new wave bands starting to emerge and selling, outselling, you know, the old guard Whereas kids were listening to previously listening to hard rock and heavy metal, they were now following the new sound. But fortunately, it wasn't that long that the new wave of British heavy metal scene started, and that was a that ob, that movement obviously was where Saxon and Maiden and and Def Leppard and Angel Witch and and all these bands started to emerge, and it it took off. I mean, not right away, but by 80, 81. Yeah. I mean, and it was fortunate for bands that were previously <clears throat> playing heavy metal and were the influences of these bands, because now they could latch onto that. Hey, we're the band Judas Priest. We're the band that influenced these bands and, and Black Sabbath were the band, one of the bands that influenced this new, this new uh, metal movement. So now they had significance Whereas before that was starting to kind of deteriorate. Now it was like it was bolstering. So, so now we had a band that 
Black Sabbath at the end of Never Say Die was basically sputtering out. But with Ozzy leaving or, or fired, I mean, there's, there's some various reports about that. One was that Bill Ward fired Ozzy. Another report was basically that Ozzy was given an ultimatum. And basically, he already left once before. So given an ultimatum, he's going to... Uh, the ultimatum was for him to straighten up and fly right, or, or he was going to be out of the band. So I think he decided, well, being what do I have to gain here? This this band, I, this is, it has me going in the direction that I wanted it to go for several years now. So I think I'm just going to leave. But given an ultimatum, can also be conceived as being fired. So anyway, so Ozzy was out. Uh, the last two albums didn't do really well, um, but with 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 Dio the whole band was re the whole sound was revamped basically on the strength of this one member dio bought he brought lyrics he brought uh he could play an instrument uh he he could arrange <clears throat> the songs you know and he did he he took a very assertive role in black sabbath i mean that's basically as as we've seen over the years uh, he's, he's an assertive person, a confident person. And, and he was looking for work. I mean, he was out of rainbow and, and black Sabbath was similar enough where it was in his wheelhouse. And I think he was excited. He was inspired. And, and the other guys, well, particularly Tony was inspired by that. Uh, Tony was definitely willing and, and ready to, to keep Sabbath moving along, uh, and if it hadn't been Black Sabbath, it was going to be a project with Tony and, and Dio regardless. Yeah, so yeah when, when I did the research for this, they, they talk about how when Tony first met Ronnie, ironically enough, they were introduced by Sharon Arden, later to become Sharon Osborne, uh, because Don Arden, Sharon's uh, father, was managing Black Sabbath. So uh, him and Ronnie meet, they talk about forming another band because at that time they were still, Ozzy was still in the band and supposedly there's uh, the one song that they were trying to get together was what would become Children of the Sea. And, and according to Tony Iommi, there is, he has a version of them working with Ozzy on, of course, it wasn't called Children of the Sea at that time. And he said a completely different lyrics, completely different melody line, but he just described how it just wasn't happening. There was, you know, Ozzy had already left before, like you mentioned, he's, he's one foot out the door, drugs and alcohol taking a toll on everybody. They meet Dio, they have Ronnie comes down. And as the story goes, they play him hey, well, we have, here's something we've been working on. And now this is something that they've been uh, trying to do something with, with Ozzy and it hasn't gone anywhere, this particular song. They play Ronnie, Children of the Sea. He says, uh, give me a minute. He sits down with a piece of paper and comes back and basically sings the song. Yeah. And like you mentioned, all their eyes light up and it's like, all right, wow, here, that, that was easy. <laughs> you know. And they, and they realize like, wow, yeah. okay, this guy. And like you said, he was a much more assertive, you know, I remember reading it, um, an interview with Geezer where he talked about really early on, like when they first met him, they started working on something and Ronnie stopped him and said, hey, can you play this chord mm. instead of that chord? Because I want to sing this. 
and they were all just sort of like blown yeah. away because <laughs> Ozzy, you know, that wasn't the way Ozzy operated. But no. Ronnie had a background. Ronnie played bass. He played guitar. He played trumpet. Ronnie knew music. He knew, you know, how to write songs. And, and although he certainly had a name from Rainbow, he was still kind of an up and coming mm-hmm star you know rainbow uh, never really broke big in the u.s they were more popular over in europe so ronnie's his star was still sort of on the rise and but he had enough uh, he had enough clout behind him i think that he could assert himself and with confidence yeah with confidence yeah. and like you mentioned you know ronnie is, is a guy that you know, he, he knows what he's doing with his vocals and with music in general. So he's able to come into Black Sabbath. He's able to, uh, and I just, I just think it all comes together for him, you know, and I think especially for Tony Iommi, because like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Bill Ward uh, is really at, at his bottom at this point with, with alcohol. Geezer leaves pretty early, and this is something that that I guess we can talk about at some point. There's a lot of different stories around uh, who played who played bass on this record. Uh, Craig Gruber claims he played bass on the record. Geezer says that he did. That time frame where Geezer leaves the band and they're rehearsing, they basically write the album. when geezer's away so geezer is able to come back and you know he describes coming back into the band and then basically playing the album for him and him being like whoa this is really you know he was really blown away by it and the fact that he wasn't there he had fresh ears on the whole thing and he you know says how blown away he he was by all this but uh, i think it was really the connection between iomi and Dio, you know, I think Iomi was the guy. Everybody else had Bill had his issues, Geezer had his his issues. Tony wanted to continue either as Black Sabbath or as something else. He meets Ronnie. There's an immediate chemistry there, and and it just starts to flow for them. And they describe like Heaven and Hell's another song that uh, you know supposedly Iomi's playing that main riff. Bill runs into the room, sits down behind the drums. A couple minutes later, Ronnie comes in and 30 minutes later, they basically have what we know today as the song Heaven and Hell. <laughs> you know, it was just it was just flowing out of them at, at this point. There seemed to be a real uh, great working chemistry between Ronnie and Tony. Yeah, <clears throat> Heaven and Hell was one of the songs they were working on with Ozzy. There was a few. Um, Lady Evil was another one. Most of the music that and most of the riffs that that Tony had ready to go was stuff they had been sort of working on before. Children of the Sea um, was was obviously the one that was probably furthest along, uh, but there was riffs and things that would later become the songs on Heaven and Hell that were being worked on while Ozzy was in the band. Jeff Nichols, <clears throat> well, first of all. Um, the person that plays bass, I'm fairly certain, and I've read a couple of interviews with Dio. I, I went into some research with this because this is a really significant album, and I, I really felt that this album was worth taking some time. And because there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of mythology. I, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but there's a lot of 
a lot of things that have been tossed about on the internet over the years. And I think it's mostly like uh, clickbait type stuff. Craig Gruber was what one time considered to be, when Geezer left, Craig Gruber was considered to be a replacement. And the other guy was Fran Sheehan from Boston. I guess they Black Sabbath the tour with Boston. And I, I know that Bill was pretty good friends with the drummer Sib, forget his last name. And, and I guess the band was friendly with, with the guys in Boston. So the Fran Sheehan was another one that was name in was the mix. Yeah. in the mix for a possible replacement. And it should be mentioned that Craig Gruber for, for those out there, his connection into this whole thing is, is that he played with Ronnie. He played on an, on a, one or two elf albums and he played on the first Richie Blackmore's rainbow album. So that's how Craig Gruber eventually works his way into the fold but yeah all right go ahead okay so um but jeff nichols had a relationship with tony because tony was while well, he, he was producing jeff's band quartz and i believe he was helping them out and and they would sometimes play with black sabbath if i'm not mistaken but there was an association there was a friendship there was a partnership between at this at this point late 70s between tony and and jeff so you could say that the music that ended up on Heaven and Hell was moving forward and it was a little bit uncertain as to whether or not it was going to be Black Sabbath or it was going to be something else. But it didn't matter because it was moving forward and it was predominantly between Tony, Ronnie and Jeff. And Jeff was there to supply. Jeff was primarily a guitar player who could also play some keyboards. But his primary function in this point was to play bass. And, and Ronnie also played bass. So there's, you had your guitar, you had your singer, and now you had two guys who could help supply the bass part of, of, of the writing and arrangement for the songs that would be on this album. So, so Jeff was pretty important to the formation of of heaven and hell. And an interesting thing, even though I, I'd heard and I had read that heaven and hell was one of the things that was being worked on while Ozzy was in the band, I don't know to what extent or where they left off, but it, Jeff mentioned in one article I read that the rift to heaven and hell, not that he was responsible for it, but it's very similar to the song Mainline Riders in, in some in some aspects. And if you listen to Mainline Riders by Quartz, you, you can hear that there is a similarity. So I think when he was involved with the writing process, perhaps he took what was the beginning of Heaven and Hell and moved it in a direction that it became on the album. But you can definitely hear a similarity between Mainline Rider it was just sort of like the rhythm part and and tony produced that first quartz album so he was he heard mainline rider um uh, mainline riders but um it, but so so geezer left and and i i don't know if i i think there's a lot of uncertainty about and, and confidence in the band at that point because ozzy defined black sabbath for that era and I'm not sure that they had a lot of confidence that this was going to work. Um, 
Bill was pretty upset about Ozzy leaving and he would struggle with that. And I think that was really primarily Bill had always had issues with, with alcohol, but I don't think it was any worse at this point than it had been before. In fact, it may have even been worse a couple years prior to that. I think Bill's main conflict was the fact that he felt a lot of guilt over Ozzy and it just didn't feel right. After all these years of them playing together and being like a family, being like brothers and and now this is a different situation and that 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 was broken it, it was a hard thing i think for them to adjust to and i think geezer was well geezer was also struggling with things but it was mostly on a personal level and i i don't think he had a lot of confidence in what was happening and i think he was just sort of burned out where so here's the dynamic we had two two guys who were burned out and, and a little apprehensive about where this was going to go and and in a bit disappointed with the, the fact that Ozzy wasn't in the band anymore. We had Bill and Geezer. And then we had two guys that were inspired and that was Tony and Ronnie. But fortunately the inspiration took off and things started moving along. And I, I don't think anything, I, I know that Craig Gruber has said that, oh, you know, I recorded some songs on, that's my bass on Heaven and Hell, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Geezer. And like you said, I think once he heard things and it came together, I think you couldn't, it was undeniably a special thing. It was different, Black Sabbath Mark II, but it was good enough where I think it generated enough excitement where it was like, okay, all right, yeah, this is this is cool. And, and Geezer, recorded the bass on heaven and hell. I don't think it sounds as much like what Geezer had done prior because a lot of it was already, a lot of it was already written by the bass parts were already pretty much there. He just did. Yeah, that's what this story goes, according to in Iomi's book that they did record the bass with Craig Gruber. Uh, Geezer comes back in and geezer doesn't listen to these bass parts and just says take them off and i'm going to put my stuff on there and i would say on this the preparing for this i just did a little for the fun of it went back and i listened to the some elf uh stuff with craig gruber and i listened to that first rainbow record and there's nothing on those records to make me think that that's the same guy who played on <laughs> on heaven and hell. Whereas Geezer, if you listen to Mob Rules, Mob Rules and heaven and hell, the bass, the tone is roughly similar. You hear a lot of similar type of playing. And to, to your point about, uh, you know, Geezer not playing like this before, I think part of it is what you described. He was able to come in and the stuff was already written. He just had to come in and riff out on it, jam out on it. He didn't have to write any of the lyrics. He talks about this he a lot that he he yeah. when working with Ronnie he didn't have to write any lyrics so the only thing he had to worry about was playing bass whereas mm -hmm. he said in the past he'd be in the studio writing out lyrics and worrying about the lyrics where now he goes I could just play bass and he I've heard him even say that's why the bass is busier and there's more bass on heaven and hell and mob rules because all I had to do was play bass <laughs> And, uh, yeah. you know, and to your point about Jeff Nichols, I think 
you know, Iomi feels uh, that Geezer's gone, personal reasons. Bill has his issues. Iomi and uh, Jeff Nichols had struck up a friendship because, like you mentioned, Iomi had worked with Quartz. They had toured together, and I think Jeff comes into the the, to the band not only for musical reasons, but I also think for some emotional support for Tony. He was a friend. He was a mate. Yeah. He comes in, he's there, he's a guy that can play rhythm guitar, he can play a little bit of keyboards, he can play some bass. And so Jeff becomes sort of this, uh, you know, support for for Tony. And in uh, a little interesting trivia for you, uh, Jeff Nichols has the second longest tenure in Black Sabbath after Tony Iommi. <laughs> he would basically be in the band yeah. from 1979 until until you know it was it was whatever 96 or whatever you yeah. know uh so and i guess this would be a good a good time too to mention that uh not that long ago as of the recording of this podcast uh, someone from jeff nichols estate i think like a a relative a cousin a nephew something like that had put on the internet, put on YouTube, some rehearsals, uh, rehearsal tapes that Jeff Nichols made during the making of Heaven and Hell. And you can hear an early version of Heaven and Hell, the song. <clears throat> you can hear a song that did not make it on the record called Slap Back, I believe. <clears throat> and uh, there, I can't remember if there was anything else, but it unfortunately got pretty quickly I'm sure he got an email from the Black Sabbath legal team and it got taken down pretty quickly, but it would have been an interesting to hear more from this because hearing them working on heaven and hell, for instance, you hear your, I'm assuming that's Jeff Nichols playing bass at this point, who knows, who's ever playing bass instead of playing right along with them, the down, 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 which is what geezer does. Jeff Nichols or whoever it is, it just goes dun da da dun da da dun da da da. He just stays on one note while the while the riff sort of plays around. So it's sort of interesting. It was a very interesting thing to hear. Unfortunately, it didn't last too long on on YouTube. It got pulled down uh, pretty quickly. But somewhere, somebody is sitting on probably a box of cassette tapes with all kinds of early versions and maybe other riffs and songs that didn't even make it make it onto the record but Jeff Nichols is sort of this unsung guy that for basically his whole tenure in the band he would he would never uh, he he would very rarely he was never listed as a member of the band he's always a additional you know additional keyboards he was never he was always off stage when he played and everything but he's he's a guy that has an interesting history with the band and it starts here with with heaven and hell yeah well you know so they at one point had considered keeping jeff on as a guitar player and expanding to a two guitar lineup but that they decided that probably wasn't the thing to do um so but they wanted to keep jeff associated with black sabbath and they made him the keyboard player and uh i think they're the thing that <laughs> the reason why he was kind of put to the back of the stage or off stage was they didn't want it to look like rainbow they didn't want to have a keyboard on stage a guy with a keyboard because we already had ronnie and at this point ozzy was already saying in the press oh you mean 
black rainbow. So in the industry people and, and everything, and I guess for the people that were aware of rainbow, I guess they were a little bit cautious about black Sabbath becoming black rainbow. So they wanted to keep the basic stage format the same as it was while it was black Sabbath, because it was important to push black Sabbath forward and try to keep as much of what they could intact to the original formula. And of course, four members on stage is the way it's always been. So while they utilize the keyboards, sometimes the fill in for the guitar um, to back up the guitar while Tony was soloing, but it wasn't really necessary at that point. It would become more important. Um, the, the, the two songs that are mostly dominated by keyboards, they didn't play live anyway. Uh, so, you know, well, actually they did. I mean, Die Young, Die Young has keyboards in it. So they utilize it for that. But I, I guess to try to get more into the Black Sabbath presentation, it was important to keep Jeff in the back. And it, it, it is sort of unfortunate for him that he wasn't, he wasn't identified. He wasn't listed as a, a full-time member. And you didn't see pictures of Jeff with the band. He was sort of the guy, he was like the, uh, the ugly girlfriend or something, you know, <laughs> sort of pushed aside. Um, but I mean, his contribution was, was obviously very valid. And um, I don't, don't think we would have had these albums if the way that they sound without Jeff's input and without his, uh, you know, uh, yeah. cooperation. To, to yeah, and what's what's what I find interesting about Heaven and Hell is is that it it sounds like it 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 sounds like a new thing, a new band, but it's still not so far off from what Black Sabbath was. It wasn't a situation like if you if you had only ever heard Blackout by the Scorpions and then you hear Lonesome Crow, you're like, whoa, is this even the same band? Or the first two UFO albums compared to the Shanker era yeah. UFO, or, you know, it was clearly a different band with a new new band. You know, Ronnie comes in and has a new, new sound to it, but it still sounded it still felt like Black Sabbath. It still had enough of a connection to what they did before that it wasn't some total radical 180 where if you were, and of course we've talked about this in our very first episode, Ozzy versus Dio, that there are people that are in the camp of, you know, only the Ozzy era is the real Black Sabbath era. But I think really as a young kid hearing Heaven and Hell, it didn't sound like a completely different band to me it, it, it wasn't like when I heard uh uh you know uh Deep Purple's uh Book of Taliesin I was like whoa did, is this the same band like did I grab by something by mistake I mean I couldn't I couldn't figure out how the Book of Taliesin by Deep Purple was the same band that did Machine Head you know yeah. but when I heard Heaven and Hell I could understand like you know, maybe that's Iomi and the riffs and everything. It's it just it it sounds like uh, you know, there's it's it's still Black Sabbath, but it's Black Sabbath for the 80s. And Ronnie's personality, I don't know if anybody else could have come into the band 
and done this. Ronnie has has a voice that Ozzy had, like you mentioned earlier. He may not have had a big vocal range, but Ozzy had a very, very unique voice and a unique tone to his voice. Ronnie is the same thing, but Ronnie has massive vocal chops. He's able to do things that Ozzy wasn't able to do, like you mentioned, that being able to sing very, very quietly, like the beginning of Children of the Sea, and then getting getting very epic, sort of these different things he can do with his voice. He also took the lyrics in a different direction. The lyrics now leave kind of the 70s, 60s sort of... Uh, sometimes hippie type lyrics that geezer used to write environmental lyrics and war lyrics and now ronnie is bringing in a bit more of a fantasy element to his lyrics and bringing a different lyrical approach and uh i, I don't know if there's anybody else that could have come in and and pulled this off the way the way that ronnie did i mean it, 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 it was no uh there was no, it didn't take them a couple albums to find their footing with Ronnie. I mean, they just, I mean, heaven and hell was a bold statement. And I would imagine that anybody who, who thought that they were done for after Ozzy left, even if you prefer the Ozzy era, you still got to respect, you know, you still got to respect heaven and hell. And at that time, you got to think like, wow, you know, this is, this is a pretty, this is a pretty strong statement. It's a really strong statement. And I, for me personally, I, I, I noticed when you compare Rod Evans, Deep Purple to, well, you say, you know, there was a definite noticeable contrast between Rob, Rod Evans era of Deep Purple and say Gillen era. And to me, that's how I see these two eras. I, I see them. I would, if I had no, if, if I had no knowledge of, these albums and and somebody in in, in a way that it, if, if i had only heard the ozzy era and somebody played heaven and hell for me at the time without knowing it was black sabbath and said do you know who this is i would say i'd probably say rainbow I, it sounds like rainbow it sounds like rainbow because it's a singer i wouldn't say oh that, that, that sounds like black sabbath there wasn't enough i mean when you when you when you listen for it you can hear it i mean i tony iomi's guitar tone is is noticeable but is it enough to consider it sounding exactly like the black sabbath of the first eight out albums i don't think so i think it sounds more like rainbow just on first impression but it wasn't it was black sabbath and that's what they're calling it and they wrote songs together. So it's a Black Sabbath album and it's valid, but it's very different from the era before. It's noticeably different. Yeah, you know, and what of, I'm sorry, go ahead. There's a lot of things that, that have changed and not the least of which was the songwriting process. The songs are being written differently now. Yeah. So because they're being written differently now and they have a different, very uh, prominent influence in the writing process, the way that the songs are performed, the bass parts, the drum parts, even the guitar parts, it's all going to change. So to me, the formula, not only just from the different singer, but the entire formula was revamped. And I think it's, I think it's cool. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I love the album, but it's different. And 
it came at a, at a good time. The band was starting to sputter out. It had basically, even though people love Never Say Die, and I get it, and I like it too, the difference in contrast, the contrast between Never Say Die and Heaven yeah. and Hell is profound. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a lot of reasons. And, and the reasons are pretty obvious. Um, Dio came in and took charge. There was no intimidation factor, none whatsoever, at least not noticeably. And as we get further into this and we start getting and in, digging into the Tony Martin era, I think that when we start to look at those albums, I, I think we'll see that was part of the reason for that to be somewhat of a, I'm not going to say failure, but not as successful as the Dio era. There was a little bit of intimidation with Tony Martin. That didn't exist with Dio. Dio was yeah. confident and justifiably so. He, was, he had every reason in the world to be confident and he took the band in a new direction, which sounded great. And you can hear Dio asserting himself in, well, all of the songs, but especially in, like you mentioned earlier, Walk Away or Lady yeah. Evil. Those to me are the songs, Wishing Well, those are the songs that really sound like Ronnie's influence. And another thing, and, I said, and you as a drummer here, you can comment on this. This does, does this sound like the drumming on this record? Does this in any way sound like the Bill Ward? Yes. From, okay. Absolutely. To yep. me, I, 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 to me, he seems so held back. Okay. And so much more less like, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, I guess it, and it makes me wonder, was it a conscious thing on Bill's part to play more straightforward type drums? Was it the producer? Was it the band uh, or was it just sort of all three of these things, different sound for the band? So Bill's playing way more just kind of straightforward. You're not hearing these sort of busier drum parts like you heard on Never Say Die or where he's doing all kinds of rolls and stuff like that. To me, the drums on this record are way more sort of simpler. And as a non-drummer, it, 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 it just sounds... I, would, I just wonder what what was the thought behind that, if that was a conscious thing or if it was... The, the, the first thing I would say is listen closer. Listen closer. Wishing Well. Walk Away. Probably the songs that we spend less time with. I was listening to it just last night and I had heard things that I guess I never really... that didn't pop out at me. And one of the reasons is because the drums are a little bit polite they're not buried, but they're a little bit more polite on this recording. Martin Birch, this is the first time working with Martin Birch, and he did a phenomenal job with this album, and later with, with Mob Rules when we get into that. But the, the, the production is different, and, and Bill isn't as quite as noticeable. And the fact that Dio is so huge, his voice demands your attention. Guitar, you know, is also pretty commanding, as is the bass. The drums are probably the most subdued aspect of this album. That said, there's also some songs that I don't think Bill was really able to connect with. The title track, I think, was one. And uh, Neon Nights is another, where he just sort of, like you said, it wasn't the typically bombastic Bill Ward going, going for it type of sound. But I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the whole, his 
that isn't necessarily Bill Ward's overall contribution to the album because in certain songs he definitely connects with it and I can hear I can hear Bill on Wishing Well and I can I can definitely hear him on Walk Away and I hear him on Lonely is the Word. Lonely is the Word is something that's totally within probably more more than any other song on the album because it's basically a blues based rhythm and that's, that's the most Bill Wardish sounding song yeah. on the on the album to me is lonely is the word and you're right that is maybe the most rooted in a 70s blues type of sound song on the record and if you hear bill talk about this record he, he often mentions lonely is the word as being a you know a personal favorite from this and so you're right i think that you know maybe he did just sort of connect uh with that one and maybe there were some other ones because bill does talk about uh not it just felt different without Ozzy there and I think he like you mentioned he struggled with that without Ozzy there that original chemistry that existed between these guys that grew up together uh, that went through all this together wasn't there anymore and and Bill always says Ronnie is an as an amazing singer but it just didn't feel like the black it didn't feel like Black Sabbath to him anymore and yeah. so well, so the emotional aspect was was relevant, but I also think that compositionally, I don't think he found much of a connection. He didn't. He he considered Dio a, a good lyricist, but it wasn't the same kind of lyrics that he had yeah. been involved with before. And 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 it was more of a band. I mean, you know, Bill would contribute lyrics. Bill would contribute to the arrangement yeah. of things. And Bill was a little bit withdrawn. I think a lot of it was due to the fact that you know he's always had issues with with alcohol and, and drugs, but it was, I think predominantly it was because of the emotional aspect that, that caused him to withdraw. But then also compositionally, I don't think that he connected with some of the songs because he just didn't like the lyrics. They weren't bad, but they weren't something that he could really put an emotional investment in. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, Bill has always said, I'm a reactionary player. I'm not a technical drummer. I, I, I go off the energy. I go off the feel of the songs. And the way that you know the other musicians are playing inspires me to do what I do. And I don't think he connected with the songs that sound the most subdued are probably most obviously the songs that he couldn't connect with. But I definitely when when you first said, does it sound like Bill Ward? And I I would I kind of thought that too for a long time. But then I was listening to it the other night, and man, I was like hearing some fills, and I'm like. Yeah, that's Bill Ward. Why didn't I notice that before? And then I'm listening to it some more. And I'm like, well, the reason is probably because Dio dominates this record. And so does Tony. And the bass is very noticeable. The guitar or the drums, less so. And uh, I, I really had to listen for it. But never say die, the production of that. I mean, Bill's drums are pretty much on top of the mix. You know, the, yeah. the rolls and stuff on... Uh, Junior's Eyes and, and some of the other songs. I mean, the drums are very bombastic. They're very noticeable. Not so much on this album. Yeah, and another thing too that I just, just thought of as he said that, maybe why Bill wasn't as engaged. Also, Geezer really wasn't there for, for you know the writing of the majority of this. So there was probably this feeling of Ozzy's not here, Geezer's not here. We don't know if Geezer's coming back. And it was just hard, hard for him uh, to connect. And like you mentioned, I think Bill is uh, was more 
you know, Bill was involved probably in a lot of these sort of arrangements and stuff like that with the earlier Sabbath stuff. And maybe with this, he just sort of took a little bit of a, you know, sat back a little bit more on this and sort of let it happen around him. And, but all right, well, let's, uh, let's take a look at some of the songs on the album. So the album starts with Neon Nights, which is the last song that they wrote for the record. They, they get to the studio, they realize they need one more song, and they basically put this together on the fly. And it's, uh, it's an awesome album opener. And it just shows like where they were at this point that they could just whip a, throw a song like this together, you know, without even thinking about it. It's got, yeah. it's, it's a, the, the opening riff is just awesome. It just comes right out at you. Iomi's guitars sound, sound great. Uh, yeah. Dio's lyrics are, are just, uh, you know, fantastic with the sort of the, the imagery and stuff like that. So yeah. it's just, it's, it's an awesome, uh, it's an awesome uh, album opener and a song that would stick in their sets with Dio, that Dio would even play himself when he went solo. So yeah, yeah. Um, as we go from song to song, there, there, I can just tell you right now, there isn't going to be a song that I'm not going to like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to sing the praises of all these songs. Uh, Neon Nights is a tremendous song. It's a great opener. It's it's like just such a great heavy metal song, and uh, man. I wish I would have been there when this album first dropped to, you know, and been like, notice the contrast because man, I'm sure I would have gotten chills. I, I mean, I, I, when I eventually got it, I, I, I did. I mean, I, I couldn't help, but just love the album. Neon Nights though, man, that is such a strong opener that just kicks all kinds of ass. And, you know, he got Dio comes in and he's just, you know, right off the bat, you know, his lyrics are there. And I mean, they're, they're kind of superficial they don't really have any any there's no deep meaning there are on some of the songs on this album and and they're very poetically stated but this one not so much this is more just like a just a throw your fist in the air and just you know a, a call to arms and it, and it works really well in that in that sense it's a great album opener and yeah yeah and the guitars sound you know martin birch's production on this record it's 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 very it, it really takes them you think about the guitar sound on never say die and then think of how forceful and sledgehammer like the guitars yeah. are here and it basically just comes out swinging at you right at the beginning and i think it makes a pretty clear statement that this this is a band that uh you know we're we're here in the 80s all you young whippersnappers and the new wave of british heavy metal we can hang with you we'll, mm -hmm. we'll teach you kids a thing or two you know yeah. and maybe that a lot of that is martin birch you know giving them this real sort of 80s style production which is sort of dry reminds me of like the iron maiden records you know it's mm -hmm. it's it's the guitars are right up there. The bass is right up there. It's very punchy. It's, it's very yeah. full sounding. So yeah, just an absolute killer opener. Yep. And then you have uh, children of the sea. This is uh, one of the things that uh, one of the many things that Ronnie James Dio does really well. You mentioned it earlier, this ability to sing very kind of light and mellow and then become really, epic and uh this is this is a uh, what's there to say about this i always love the the intro to this with the uh, picked guitar thing it just sounds mm -hmm. sounds amazing sort of pseudo classical thing that main verse riff is just killer i love the part in the song where we were talking about jeff nichols 
there's a, sounds like a keyboard part that sounds like uh, voices, like, you know, it's just absolutely epic. Uh, Iomi's guitar solo is, is great. It's just, Ronnie sounds amazing on it. It's just, it's an absolutely killer epic song. This is where Dio brings the epic vibe to Black Sabbath. That was something that I don't know if they had really had this before. And this is where Ronnie here really brings, okay, here's that almost, you mentioned power, uh, you know, Ronnie is somebody who's, who's in the world of power metal is a huge influence. Well, this is this kind of thing right here, you know, this very epic uh, vocal uh, delivery from Ronnie and this song just, just makes it really powerful. Yeah, you can discuss for days, and we've already, you know, we, we put that as part of this this episode. You can discuss for days the differences between the, the era, the Ozzy era and the Dio era and all the differences and all the, you know, the, uh, the virtues of one versus the other and back and forth and back and forth all day long for probably weeks. But it doesn't matter because Children of the Sea is just a great song. I mean, if you're going to get caught up with what, qualifies as Black Sabbath and what doesn't and overlook the fact and not enjoy Children of the Sea for what it is, then I feel sorry for you. <laughs> yeah. Sincerely, because it's just a phenomenal song. Um, and, and it is, it, it's very different from the Ozzy era. You wouldn't, and it's kind of surprising when I, when I, when I heard that uh, it was one of the things that they were working on with Ozzy. And I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I guess if I, if I really think about it, I can, I can hear some of the melodies and I can hear what Ozzy could possibly do to it, but certainly wouldn't be as, as, as grandiose or as epic as, as what Dio ended up doing to it. The, you know, the, the variation of, of tones and, 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 and the epic quality, and I keep coming back to this epic quality because it's so prevalent on this album. It's something that it was uncharted territory for Black Sabbath. I mean, we have, earlier songs that got, like we had talked about, there were some cinematic qualities to them, but nothing that equates to this. Um, this was just really profound. And the performances are great. Um, the really cool thing that I kind of also keep mentioning is that the confidence in Dio, and you have to figure that most people joining a band that had already been very well established and coming in would be a little self-conscious. Am, am I, am I, am I asserting too much of myself? Am I, am I, am I overwhelming the band? Not Dio. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think from everything I read interviews with Dio, I, I think he was, and, and, and my wife met him a few times and, and, and she said he was one of the nicest people she's ever met. So I think he's, he's, a, he's a really cool person. I never met him, but based on, on most accounts, he was a really cool person. But when it came to music and when it came to, to being in a band, yeah, I mean, he had confidence and, 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 and that's what this band needed. This band needed somebody that wasn't gonna be a little bit self-conscious, um, a little bit unsure of themselves and see where it goes. They needed somebody to just really light the fire and move things forward and redefine this band. And he did it. And this is, like I said, Neon Knight starting off the album is a great call to arms. 
gets things rolling along. But Children of the Sea is when you see what a profound difference there is with, with Dio in the band from, from where they left off with Never Say Die and, and where they are now. So, yeah. yeah. And I love the ending of it too. You know, look out, never, never, never coming back. Look out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then right into Lady Evil. Uh, this is a little different. This, this one is a little more upbeat sounding, but uh, it's cool. You know, I, I, I like this one. If, if you forced my hand on it, it, it would, and you made me rank the songs on the album here, this Lady Evil would be a little more towards the bottom, you know, after stuff like Children of the Sea. And, yeah. But it, it, it works because you just come off of this epic children, we keep mm. saying epic, you just come off of the big bombastic Children of the Sea yeah. and then Lady Evil sort of fits a nice, slots in nicely here because of course after lady evil we have the the real epic of this this album so lady evil serves as a nice uh slightly different feel i don't want to say it's lighter but it's a little more upbeat kind of feeling than uh you know than what we've heard so far and uh it's cool the lyrics are fun i think the sequence on this well i think it works well in the sequence and like you said when you come off when you come out of Children of the Sea, where are you going to go? Um, and this is a this is this song has a perfect placement on side one. I'm not sure that the sequence is is as good as other albums. I mean, I, I for me, the, the best sequence on on any Black Sabbath album, I think, was Technical Ecstasy, as far as the material that they had to work with. I think that there's some things that could have been switched around a little bit, um, but. Where Lady Evil lands, I think, is a good place. It, it's 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 lighthearted. It's fun. Um, some people don't like Lady Evil. I liked it from the first time I heard it. It's fun. I mean, there's, it's kind of like an NIB in a way. You know, it's it's a bit of a, of a fantasy type of thing. There's, you know, this fictitious character and the, the songs about that. It's not, you know, making any like you know, sociological statement or anything or anything political, which is just that's fine too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of, you could call it levity from, you know, the epicness of Children of the Sea. And, you know, you kind of wind down a little bit and, and, you know, it's fun. It's a good song. I like it. And I'm guessing that this was, I, yeah, it was, it was one of the singles and where it's slotted on the record makes me think, I wonder if the record company or the band thought that maybe Lady Evil would be the, you know, the, the radio hit from this album and because you could kind of hear it it's it's it clocks in i think at uh, a pretty tight four minutes and 26 seconds which at this point well neon nights is only a little under four minutes but uh you know it's a song that moves by pretty quickly it's got a pretty straightforward uh format to it Mm -hmm. verse chorus verse chorus type of thing but but then that leads into, of course, the the monumental uh, title track, which when you're thinking of all time great heavy metal songs, uh, this 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 is one that comes up in discussion. It's maybe the song that defines the Dio era of Black Sabbath in a lot of ways. Uh, it sort of encapsulates everything that works about this era. You've got the moodiness, the way the verses drop down. Uh, you've got the big chorus. You've got one of Iomi's 
you know, greatest, this, this is a riff right up there with Iron Man and Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. It's one of those riffs that when, when they play it live, everybody sings along with it. Uh, it's it's uh, the way the song at the end of the song goes into that double time uh, type of thing. It's just great. Uh, I always loved Ronnie had a great way of, and I don't know what you would really call this if you will call it another verse, but he always did these tag lines yeah. at the end of a lot of songs. And like in this one, you get the world is full of kings and queens who bind your eyes and steal your dreams. It's heaven and hell. And this is a quintessential Ronnie type of lyric to Ronnie. He likes to do these, use these like contrasting things like a rainbow in the dark, uh, or he likes to sing about, uh, sing for the common man, sing for the downtrodden, sing about the evils of the people in power type of thing. You know, we're the last in line. We rock, you know, that that whole thing. And that's a real strength for me with Ronnie when he sings those those kind of lyrics like, you know, these warnings like, you know, the world is, 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 is heaven and hell, this contrast between good and evil, battle of good and evil. And I, I just think it's a perfect, if you, if you had to pick maybe some one of Ronnie's greatest lyrics, uh, if somebody picked heaven and hell, I wouldn't argue with them. And I might, I might pick that too. The lyrics in it are just amazing the song, the riff, it's just huge. It's, it's the definition of a title track. You want your title track to be a song like this, you know, monumental. I love the way it ends. And there's those little acoustic guitar things on the fade out that just makes it feel all the more, you know, grand and uh, bombastic and everything. So it's just an absolutely fantastic song that sort of defines the Dio era of Black Sabbath for me. Yeah, I mean, this is where Dio's lyrics really come in and take center stage. Um, and and you're right, Dio did, he did get into a lot of the, the you know, the, the, the contrast between dark and light and, and different ways that, you know, he would express that there was so much contrast in the world around us. And it, it was a, it was a recurrent theme throughout his career. And at some point it, it did get a little bit tired <laughs> because it was, there's only so many ways you could say the same thing, but here, <laughs> I mean, it's the first, it's the first time we heard it. And uh, at least the first time that I'm aware of. Um, and it, it's really profound. The, the, the word choices, um, it's very, very illustrative. And the lyrics are just, are great. Not that there's anything, I mean, Geezer's lyrics were great too, but this just takes the band <clears throat> to a whole new level. And, and like you said, Dio would often write for the common man. And it, it just so happens that I think a, not everyone, but the majority of the audience that, that listens to heavy metal is coming from a certain mindset. And I won't say necessarily a mentality, but it's, it's, it's certainly a mindset and I think that the concept, the lyrical concept of this song resonates very well to that, to that audience. And Dio knew that. And I think Dio knew it because he was part of that. I, I think that you can't write something like this without having your own, making your own emotional investment. This isn't forced. This isn't contrived. This is sincere. And it's obvious. And I think that's one of the reasons why this song resonates and has resonated 
so well ever since 1980. Um, there's that aspect. The musical aspect with all its peaks and valleys and emotional, it just coincides so well with the lyrics. It's a marriage in this song. And here we are again with Epic, but it is. The marriage between the music and the lyrics is, is perfect. And it almost defies the reality of this being a new band, a new lineup, because it sounds like something that maybe a band that was together for, for a longer period of time, once they became acclimated to one another, they'd be able to, to integrate everything into a song that might sort of sound like this. For the first album, the first time out, to have it so well integrated, the music, the lyrics, everything, the voice, the way that the voice blends with, with Tony's uh, heavy tone, lighter tone, bluesy tone. You got a lot of things going on in this and, and, and it's all complimentary and it all works so well as a unit. The song is phenomenal. Um, it's an amazing title track and uh, yeah, it's one of their best songs. I mean, <laughs> in a way, and I love the Aussie era, but when you compare Heaven and Hell to something off maybe Paranoid, and again, you're comparing apples to oranges, but this is just more, it just kind of takes on an, uh, a sophistication that, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's very different, very different, but also very successful. And, you know, I mean, I can listen to it now and I still get chills sometimes if it's at the right volume or it catches me in the right mood man I I'll still get chills it's it's just it's, it's a great song I mean yeah and what's really I think what what it shows where, where the band had evolved it's it's so well written there's never really a point in the song where you feel like there's some part that goes on too many times or yeah. oh it just sounds like they're jamming here or it's unfocused it's like to me, this is 80s Dio era Black Sabbath. Uh, it's just really, and maybe that's a Martin Birch influence also. They're able to just really focus in on, on the strengths of the songs. And this is a great example of it. It's, it's a fairly long song. Uh, I can check the timing here, but it doesn't feel like a long song. It goes by very very quickly it moves along it's a, it's a seven minute song six minutes and 59 seconds it doesn't feel like that yeah. because it's just so well written it's so engaging the peaks and valleys the, the ending and it's one of those songs that uh, makes you proud to be a metalhead you know when you're yeah. somewhere and you <laughs> when you hear something right. like this come on you know it's like you were mentioning earlier you know back at this this era being a metalhead you, you would be a real outcast and stuff like that but Ronnie had this way of sort of pulling everybody into the we're all one family here and it, it is it's one of those songs that this is one of those songs that you hear a lot when you're waiting for a band to come on stage and this gets played over the PA system and the whole everybody starts singing that riff everybody sings yeah. along with it. it's just one of those songs that you might be a death metal fan you might be a black metal fan or a power metal fan when this song comes over the pa system everybody's got their fist in the air everybody's singing along it's one of those songs that uh i think most metal heads would agree is just an absolute 
respected uh, classic that everyone tips their hat to it yeah. <laughs> whenever it whenever it comes on. It's a, it's a legendary it's a legendary song and and maybe one of Dio's greatest uh, vocal performances. So, For so sure. that close that closes out side one and side two opens up with Wishing Well and this is uh, you know one that we had mentioned earlier that maybe you can hear Dio. It, putting his stamp on the band it, it wishing well sounds like something you could hear maybe in his solo band when he would go solo it has a sort of a very melodic uh sense to it i i think it's cool i like it i like the energy of it the vibe of it i know this is a song that that some some people don't care for on this record but uh I think it's fun. I like the energy of it. I like Iomi's. Uh, Iomi's got some cool guitar soloing in it and uh, uh, some cool drumming in it. You know, we mentioned earlier Bill mm. Ward. I think this is one where Bill Ward does get to shine a little bit on this one. So yeah, I think it's a poor choice of uh, opener for side two, but I think it's a it's a good song. I think one of the reasons that <clears throat> I had a hard time with it was because it was coming, it was following Heaven and Hell. It's a little bit of a lighter type of song you know it's more of a happy song and uh in some ways you know you need something you, you i mean what are you going to follow heaven and hell up with i mean what, what what's going to really where are you going to go from there so you, you gotta i mean you, you gotta pick something personally me i would i would have i would have put die young yeah die young would have been a better side the, two opener than wish the but then you would have had wishing well and walk away right next to each other and those two are are sort of like you said more happy they're, they're more similar yeah. sounding so yeah so i think it's it it is where it it has to be and uh, yeah because having wishing well and, and walk away back to back may not be a good choice but it it may not be a bad choice either. I don't know. I've, I've never, I've never changed the sequence of this album. I think it's not <laughs> a sacrilege to do that, but um, you know, upon closer inspection, that, that's where I'm coming from with this. And one of the reasons why I don't think I really instantly took to wishing well that much, um, but the song itself. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I like it a lot. I, I think it's a great melody. I think Dio really shines in this. I think it, it brings a little bit of a rainbow vibe to it. Yeah. It's not too dissimilar from some of the stuff you did with rainbow, but that's cool. You know? And there's still enough fantasy style lyrics in this to keep me personally engaged. Uh, we're going to get to walk away in a little bit and I'll have <laughs> My, my issue with walk away but you know wishing well still has enough of uh, uh i'll give you a star just in a dream on you know it's, it yeah. has a little bit of a dreamy fantasy sort of vibe to it and i think that that saves it a little bit for me uh you know even though it is upbeat the fantasy lyrics uh you know pull me in on this one. yeah but again, we talked about Bill Ward's drumming. Uh, this is one of the songs where he really, uh, I don't know if he connected with the music, maybe he liked the lyrics, I don't know, but he definitely definitely really shines on this song. This is where I was like, man, he's, he's busy. You know, I mean, there's, he could have coasted his way through this one in the way that he kind of does with Neon Nights and, and Heaven and Hell, but he doesn't. And, and I think that it's noticeable. You have to listen for it because like we, we talked about, you know, the production 
is a little unusual. Well, it's definitely different from, from Never Say Die. Um, and Never Say Die, man, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that also, who, who produced that? Was that Martin Birch as well? No, that was the band. I'm pretty sure the band produced that themselves. I don't think okay. it was Iomi. I mean, you know, the band as in Tony Iomi. Uh, okay. Well, anyway, so we have a different producer and in Martin Birch, and he was basically was an engineer, come producer, and this was relatively, I guess, early for him in the production seat, where he would go from this album to the one that followed. I think the contrast is pretty profound, but this this <clears throat> this production of this album is a little dry. You know, it 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 could. I mean, it's a great album, but it could benefit from the same sort of treatment that was given to Mob Rules. Um, and uh, one of the things I think that suffers, as we talked about, was the drums. But then on this song, if you listen, you can hear that Bill Ward is, is really putting in a pretty pretty inspired performance on this one. So that, that works to its advantage as well, at least for me personally. But yeah, I like the song. It's a good song. All right, then uh, Die Young. This is a, one of the other really strong songs for me on this record. When I think of the really big songs, I think of Neon Nights, Children of the Sea, Heaven and Hell, and Die Young. Uh, it's an, another song that's it's got a lot of cool ch little changes and shifts, shifting gears, like the way the chorus in the song sort of drops down. Die Young! You know, uh, these sort of keyboard parts in this, this is one where Jeff Nichols gets to shine a little bit on the keyboards. Uh, great, great riffing all over. Uh, Dio sounds amazing on it. Uh, the chorus of the song on the outro of the song with Dio's just doing a die young, die young, die young, you know, thing is just epic. Yeah. I always picture that that video uh, that they had for this song in my head whenever I whenever I hear this, uh, you can just picture Ronnie on stage with the long sleeved thing he used to wear back then, you know, yeah. and there's that little slow motion clip in the video where Ronnie sort of flips his mic stand around yeah. and the, and the band yeah. kicks into the faster part. So uh, just a, a really, really, uh, a great song that sometimes gets a little overshadowed by like Children of the Sea and Heaven and Hell. But for me, this is, this is right up there with, yeah. uh, with, with those. I was just going to say that I, I, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I, I didn't spend nearly as much time with side two as I did with side one. I think side one dominates this album. I, I think that when you yeah. get to the end of side one, you want to put the needle back to the beginning and start over again with neon nights rather than flip it over. I mean, you have to, when you first listen to it, but I think once you play through side two, you realize that well, it's a little bit out of balance. Wishing Well is one of the reasons why I think that I was less drawn to side two. Starting off with that, after you got to the end of Heaven and Hell, you know, it, it was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, and then probably didn't, I, I don't think Die Young really jumped out at me the way that it should have. And I love it. It's a phenomenal song. But I, I think I kind of like, I lost a little bit of interest during Wishing Well, and I, I, I only really listened 
to, to side two probably half as many times as I listened to side one. So I didn't really get into a lot of these songs as, as much. Um, when Die Young finally did click, when I, when I did actually like really pay attention to it, I, I couldn't understand why I didn't before that, you know. The, the contrast there's so many like powerful expressions in this it's just like even little subtle things like when we get the piano part and then it goes and then the music goes, and then you hear like a little something in the background i don't know what it is it's like a little keyboard effect or something just builds this atmosphere yeah and and it, it, it's 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 really cool that middle yeah. section is just great, you know. Yeah. And those layered vocals from Ronnie. Ah, yeah. That's just yeah, and then the solo so just epic. tears yeah. into it. Yeah, man. Great song. And and it's every bit as good as anything. Well, it's almost as good as anything on side one, but it's definitely one of the highlights of the album for sure. All right, and then walk away this this is this is my least favorite song on the album not that i hate the song like, like you said earlier there's nothing that i there's no songs that i hate on here but this is the one that for me really feels like it could have been a rainbow like do you close your eyes with rainbow that kind of like vibe like i'm, I'm looking at the lyrics of walk away right now and these just really you know, don't feel very Black Sabbath like, Lord, she's handsome as she flows across the floor. Nothing I've seen in my life has ever pleased me more. She's got the look of freedom and it makes you think she's wild, but I can see right through it all. It's, it's a way to have a child. Oh, walk away. She's looking to love you. I mean, even, I, even as a young kid, I remember thinking like, wow, these, this is really kind of, not very Black Sabbath-like. And even though even though uh, we were talking about Wishing Well being sort of more uplifting sounding, the lyrics were able to keep me engaged. I think this is what sort of doesn't work for me on, on this one. And I mean, it's fun. The chorus is catchy, but it, it feels kind of throwaway. Uh, it feels kind of throwaway to me. Yeah, uh, they, they lose me on this one. It's not a bad song, like you said. It's okay. The lyrics are, um, yeah, I mean, in, in, in comparison to some of the other lyrics on, on the album, it's like the, the quality is, is obviously profoundly diminished. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's okay. It's okay. But, I, you know, I, I, it isn't one of the songs I think about. When it comes on and in sequence, I'm cool with it. Uh, I did. I didn't like it for 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 a while in the beginning, but and I've I've grown accustomed to it. And there, like I said, I mean, we go from song to song. I mean, there there just isn't any song I I dislike on the album. Um, there's some songs that are better than others. Walk Away is cool. Um, there's not really much to say about it. It is what it is. I mean, it's yeah. It's kind of just I, like that's a good. There isn't really a lot to say about it. It's just kind of. It's not a bad song. It's just there. It, it, yeah. There isn't anything particularly that jumps out at you about it. There isn't any, like we're talking about Die Young, that awesome middle section. And uh, yeah, there isn't anything like that in this song. It just sounds like a real straightforward rock, hard rock uh, type of song. So. Filler. 
Well, then the album ends with maybe the deep cut on this record for me, a song that I that I really like. And that for me, again, when I think of the big pillars of this record for me, it's it's Neon Nights, Children to See, Heaven and Hell, Die Young and Lonely is the Word. Uh, I think this is an awesome in a lot of ways, some, some sometimes I think, well, man, you know, maybe they should have ended the album with Heaven and Hell. But I think that Lonely is the Word is a perfect uh, album closer. I love that main riff. I love uh, the lyrics in it. Uh, it's It sounds the heavy, doomy type of riff. I love Iommi's solo in it. He gets a little kind of jazzy and spacey on the solo and the way the whole song just kind of fades out and right before the song fades out you can hear bill ward do this like john bonham style yeah. like drum fill yeah. like right before the whole the whole thing goes out so it's just uh it's a it's a real cool album opener and i think it works really well and if, if you're making a Black Sabbath deep cuts episode. This this would be on the on the list for me, and I'm I'm glad that when they got back together as the band Heaven and Hell, that this was a song that they that they played. And apparently yeah. on the Heaven and Hell tour, they they did sometimes play this song, but it's sort yeah. of uh, a forgotten, uh, you know, one that gets uh, forgotten. Maybe because it's like you said, all the big heavy hitters are on side one. But this is a song that definitely deserves a lot of respect, in my opinion. It's great. And Iomi, a real shining moment for Iomi here on this outro guitar solo. It might be his best guitar solo to date. Well, no, up to that point, I think. Yeah, it was, it was great. Uh, prior to that, I think Dirty Women, he really outdid himself. But I think this... Yeah, it's probably... up there. This is up there. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of like a yeah. Iomi showcase. Sure. Yeah, it's a great album closer. I, I, I wouldn't. Heaven and Hell is good where it is at closing outside one. I mean, you want to not necessarily present Heaven and Hell too early because it's like that's your, you know, that's your big gun there. And I mean, that's that's your highlight. And basically, it falls right around the middle of the album. And that's a good place for it. Uh, I wouldn't want to present it too early because then everything else that followed would be not as so where it is and the point is that lonely is the word as the album closer takes things out in a really cool way it kind of trails off you know you see like the sunset and it's running out into the distance and you know we close the chapter on on black sabbath you know we, we close the book on this chapter for now and yeah i mean symbolically i think it works um the song itself bluesy it's consistent with the black sabbath personality the trademark so it kind of ties things together brings things maybe back to the original vibe and and so it works in that respect too um i like the lyrics i like dio's voice uh bill ward plays well on it it's, it's a great song and um yeah i mean for me it's one of the highlights of the album and it's got i i if, if, if I had to pick top 10 Dio lines, like single lines from Ronnie James Dio, I love when he says the one, I used to count in millions then, but now I only count in one. <laughs> that is just the way he says that line. It's just, I love it, man. He has that certain 
quality when he says you could just picture like his his fist you know up in the air when he does that and it's just love yeah, it he, he does sometimes the lyrics that he writes almost seem like each line or sentence is separated from the one before or the one that follows and he goes more for colorful expression and illustrative um phrases and and this certainly has has quite a few of them and that's one of them but when we get to mob rules and i know you and i are on the same page with this there's one line man that's just like the ultimate do line and we'll get to that i can't wait for that but yeah i mean he's um like we said i mean he, he came into this situation fairly assertive and write some great lyrics but i think as as time moves on the lyrics will become some of the things, some of the concepts will get a little bit tired and, and redundant, but um, he's getting primed up. He's getting primed. And, and this, is, uh, this is one of the songs where he's starting to get to that. Okay, now, the, now things are starting to warm up. Yeah, yeah. and he's, he's sort of starting, really starting to define who he is. I mean, he did that with Rainbow, with like Stargazer, Gates of Babylon, mm -hmm. but... He, more so here now with songs like Heaven and Hell, the Neon Nights, Die Young, Lonely is the Word, these types of lyrics, this type of delivery, this type of thing. Uh, this to me is Dio really uh, coming into his own uh, with, with this, uh, this type of thing that he would carry over into his solo band, even stuff like, uh, you know, Walk Away and... Uh, and uh, Lady Evil, you know, to me sound very Dio band-like. And I think Ronnie is also peaking. You know, here's, here's Ronnie really coming into his own. And like you mentioned, some of this stuff would start to get a little bit stale as his solo career would, would move on. But at this point, it's, it's all fresh, it's all new. And he's, he's really starting to, to, to shape his own image and identity and, and who he is. Yeah. And a lot of the themes that he 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 writes are darker than what he did with Rainbow. So he's identifying he's you know, I keep coming back to this this concept of him coming into this band that's already well established and well regarded and coming in with the utmost confidence and and really asserting himself. And he certainly did. But he also asserted himself in in a way that he tailored what he was doing his contribution lyrically musically to what he felt would be his concept like it, it almost seems as though if the hypothetical situation was that somebody was sitting across from dio and said hey you're going to join black sabbath what would you what would how would you do that what would your contribution be and he would take a cocktail napkin and write down a list of about five things that he would do you know the lyrical concept the the darkness the the phrases the you know the overall vibe would probably be one of them you know um and that's really cool because it, it, at this point it's not an it wouldn't be enough for somebody to come in and just go through the motions and pick up where they left off and and, and try to half-heartedly or self-consciously pick up the ball you needed somebody to come in and say, um, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it in a way that's going to be very different, but I'm going to do it in a way that 
it's going to make a profound statement. And I think they needed that. I mean, they, they needed that, that shot in the arm and man, he, he definitely did it. And, um, you know, again, we can go back and forth with like, you know, the contrast between the, the, the 70s era, the Aussie era, and the Dio era. And it does, I think in the day, man, it doesn't matter because what we have is probably a different band with some similarities, but it's a great band and it's called Black Sabbath. And it's just as, just as valid as anything else they've done before because the material is so strong. And, and that's what really sells this is just, you know, how strong the material is. Absolutely. It's uh, <clears throat> for sure. I mean, my final thoughts on the record, it would be it's just it's it's a classic album, even the album cover. We haven't even talked about the album cover. That's that's an iconic image that that yeah. also plays into the to the, uh, you know, the feel of this this whole record, this the hand drawn picture of the band on the back makes it seem real sort of sophisticated. And this is like this ain't beer drinking music. This is like. Oh, this is this is going to be a little bit headier than, uh, you know, just partying and chicks and stuff like that. You know, this is going to be a sophisticated kind of kind of thing here. And and it and it works. You know, it is. It's sort of like it, it, it is. It's like a fine painting that you would see on a wall and, and you know, in uh, the Queen's. <laughs> You know, in in a castle or something, royalty. It's it's rock royalty at this point. You know, an album, this this album, and in every aspect, it's really Dio coming into his own. It it breaks Dio uh, even bigger here in the U.S. and everything. It's really Dio's big coming out party in a lot of ways. It it it, it interjects new life into Black Sabbath. And it's it's an album that has stood the test of time very, very well. I can still put this record on and crank it up and it still sounds amazing. Uh, it's it's just a it's it's a classic. It's a classic in every sense of the word. I'm not sure that there's a lot of bands that, that could have done something like this and gotten away with it as well as they did. I mean I think that Ozzy's voice his presence was such a large part such a big part of the band i mean he was like i mean he was it was so iconic that he was on the cover of volume four one of their mo most successful albums i mean he was a i'm not ozzy was an iconic figure and in, in, in a lot of ways a trademark for black sabbath so to move away from that i mean you only really have two choices either you can completely disband and you know reform under a different name or you can just say look we're going to go back to the drawing board and we're going to re revamp this whole thing and we're going to redefine it and that's what they did and i give them a lot of credit for that because it's not an easy thing to do coming from where they were the one thing that was sort of fortunate though was that where they landed with the last album there was a lot of room to grow there was a lot of to go lot up. Of, yeah i mean yeah, you had, yeah you, there's there's a lot lot to do and um i mean if they had ended say on like sabotage or Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. Sabbath would yeah. be more challenging and I don't think it would have been accepted as well but right. to their advantage they they didn't end up on a on a very high note so wherever they went from this would have probably been better it, than where they landed but it was time for a makeover it was yeah. it was clear as much as as much as I like never say die it, it, it just from sales figures alone and never say die was their worst selling album up to that point. So I'm sure it was clear to the band that, okay, it's, it's, it's time for a makeover here and, uh, and everything worked. So 
All right, yeah. you got any final thoughts on heaven and hell? Um, I, you know, I mean, I, I'd like to talk about Martin Birch. I mean, just for a second. I mean, I think that we, we, we kind of glossed over that. I mean, what, what a phenomenal producer. And he, he died, like, did he die last year? Passed away. Yeah, within the last year, yeah. Um, he, I, I think that his production is also one of the things that, that corresponds with the production of the album as well as the the composition the lyrics everything it all works together and i think that he was also like almost a member of the band in the sense where his uh his production shapes the album and makes it is um i i think though that like we said or like i said i guess um it could have been a little bit better but i think his first time out with the band working with him i think was pretty successful i think as things move forward in the next album it got better, but I think where it is, I think he was the right man for the job, and uh, he he really helped redefine the band. The production also helped. Yeah, so. yeah, I, I think it's great, and I think it brings Black Sabbath into the '80s. It puts them right up there with all the new wave of British heavy metal bands. It doesn't make them sound dated. It makes them sound like they're yeah. mixed with everybody else at the time. In contrast to somebody like Kiss, what Kiss was doing in 1980 made Kiss sound like a band from the 70s, a band that was out of touch with what was what was getting ready to happen with this new wave of British heavy metal, you know, whereas Martin Birch brings Black Sabbath into the 80s and uh, you know, puts them right up there with uh, it, it's not an album that does it doesn't sound dated, you know, it 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 fits you know it sounds like what a lot of the other bands were doing at that time and everything and i think that that really helped in keeping black sabbath relevant if they had put out an album that that did sound really dated if they had had bob uh bob ezrin as a producer and bob was doing something that you know making it sound like a 70s record i don't i don't think it would have helped you know this was martin birch was the perfect guy for the job yeah well martin birch the irony behind it is martin birch was uh produced a lot of classic 70s records i mean he was essentially a 70s engineer slash producer but um yeah he brought a, a very um uh I'm reluctant to say modern, but contemporary sound to the album. I, I think the best thing that he did was sort of make it a little bit, in a way, kind of nondescript, so you can't date it. There's yeah, you know, in the '80s, it doesn't sound. I mean, there's plenty of albums that come out, came out in the '80s, and you can tell there, there's you know there's the drums have a certain sound, yeah, yeah. A certain ambiance to the to the. This is very dry. Yeah. It has a very simple, dry sound to it, which helps it not sound dated. Yeah. And luckily at that time with the new wave of British heavy metal, a lot of these bands were real kind of raw and dry. You think of Iron Maiden killers and stuff like that. They're just sort of straight ahead. There's not a lot of effects. There's not a lot of reverb and stuff like that going that on. It's just too. Right, exactly. So he just sort of, Martin was good at sort of capturing yeah. that, just the sound of the band. And you know what's funny, as, as a complete total off topic, what's kind of funny, and I'm just going to touch on this, when you, when you mentioned Killers, one of the things that I, when the first time I heard Killers, I thought it reminded me of Deep Purple Machine Head. 
and I had no idea that Martin did. <laughs> like, it has a quality of it kind of reminds me of Machine Head. But yeah, I mean, I Martin Birch definitely has that. We're going to let the music do the talking. We're not going yeah. to overwhelm it with you know production uh, bells and whistles. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. A, a, a classic for the ages. Uh, Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell starts a new chapter yep. for the band. So uh, everybody out there, uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to pick it up now and just keep keep going here with uh, Black Sabbath through the 80s now. And we're also going to be uh, touching on the solo albums as they happen, where we are going to be discussing Ozzy's solo career as it in the timeline, as it as it comes up uh, with uh, what was going on with Black Sabbath and eventually when Dio goes solo. So there's going to be it's, it's going to get interesting. There's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about here in the next uh, eight, 1980 to 1985 or so, 84 to so. so. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. And these are some classic albums. These are landmark milestone albums. And uh, yeah, I, it was great to be alive in that in that era. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I I think it's cool to be to start talking about some of these solo albums because uh it's all part of the Sabbath family. There's all, there's a connection there. And I think it's relative, relevant. All right. Well, we'd like to thank everybody out there for listening. Uh, Stop over on our Facebook page and you can stay updated over there. And when we have the new episodes uh, come out, so we appreciate everybody's support and we'll uh, thank you again, everybody. And we will see you for the next episode.